My question for you today from Revelation chapter 5 is, why should you worship the capital L, Lamb? Why should you worship the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sin of the world? Well, before we get into this wonderful passage, I want to introduce it with one of my favorite, all-time favorite authors. When I was a child, I uh, thoroughly loved reading the famous British Christian writer by the name of C.S. Lewis. You'll see a picture up there from one of his books. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, was drawing from Revelation chapter 5 here in his fifth book uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia called The The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And here's what he wrote, and and you'll see the, the clear imagery from Revelation 5. He says, Between the children and the foot of the sky there was something so white on the green grass that even their eagle's eyes could not hardly look at it. They came on and saw that it was a lamb. By the way, Lewis capitalizes lamb in his book, clearly in allusion to Jesus Christ. And here's what the lamb said, Come and have breakfast. Then they noticed for the first time that there was a fire lit on the grass and fish roasting on it. They sat down and ate the fish, and it was the most delicious food they had ever tasted. Please, lamb, said Lucy, is this the way to Aslan's country? Now, if you don't remember, Aslan is the Christ figure. He often comes in the form of a lion. So she's wondering how to get to Aslan's country. And the lamb says, there's a way into my country from all the worlds. But as he spoke, his snowy white flushed into yellowy gold, and his size changed into this next picture you'll see here. It changed. And he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. And then he said, I will not tell you how long or short the way will be, only that it lies across a river. But do not fear that, for I am the great bridge builder. And again, he capitalizes bridge builder. Well, that bridge builder is clearly Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the bridge builder. He's the one that, that, that covers that great chasm, the separation between, between us and God. As a result of sin, we are separated. Sinners cannot get into heaven, and so we need the bridge builder. And in this wonderful story, C.S. Lewis aptly shows Jesus Christ as both a lion and a lamb which is what exactly we see here in Revelation chapter 5. So let's read Revelation 5, starting in verse 1. This is John here. And he says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. You'll notice a scroll here. You'll notice 
Jesus Christ mentioned here, the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the one who is conquered. And so in Revelation, we, we, see, we see a Jesus Christ who is vastly different from what we've seen him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's no longer that little baby in a manger. <laughs> He's no longer one being crucified on a cross. He is the risen Savior. He is a glorious lion. And so the focus of attention shifts here in, in our story and it's not just a story, it's a real event that's going to happen one day. But, but it, it shifts to this seven-sealed scroll that's in the hand of God. Now, the scroll couldn't be read, as it says. It, it was rolled up, it was sealed with these seven seals, kind of like you know, they, they did in Roman times. They would, they would pour hot wax on, on, on the parchment, and then they would, uh, a Caesar or whoever it might be, put their, put their ring in that hot wax and... And that's how they would seal documents that would spread throughout the Roman Empire. This one, notice, it's not just one seal. It's seven seals. The sign of completion, the perfect number of God. And so John could see writing on both sides of the scroll. Uh, That's interesting because I think that meant that nothing more could be added to it. It's, It's full. It's on both sides. Well, you might ask, well, what was written? Well, what was written, as we see here, was something that was completed. It was final. Uh, Throughout this chapter, in fact, you're going to see the number seven, the number of completion and finality and perfection several times. The scroll represents Christ's title deed. If you've bought a house, you've got a title deed. You may not have it. It might be a city council or somewhere else, but... That tells you that you own that property and whatever is on that property. And the scroll here, representing Christ's title deed to to all that the Father promised him. And and how did that happen? It's, It's because of what Christ did, his finished work on the cross. He gave himself as that sacrifice. And the book of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is the heir of all things. And rightfully so, he made it all anyway. Uh, He is our beloved kinsman redeemer. We see that imagery of Christ in the book of Ruth. uh, Boaz being that uh, kinsman redeemer. Jesus Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. He is the one who is willing to give his life to set us free from bondage and to restore our lost inheritance. So as Christ removed the seals... Various dramatic events took place, which you can read about in your book of Revelation there. The seventh seal introduced the seven trumpet judgments. In the the next few chapters, you can read about those. And then when the seventh trumpet judgment blew, uh, the great day of God's wrath was announced, ushering in the bold judgments that brought God's wrath to a climax. Again, you can read that further on in the book of Revelation. Those are some... Amazing events that will happen in the tribulation. So God gave Jesus Christ the title deed because he is the heir of all things. And so a title deed, or if you, if you will, you, want, you, you could call it a will, it, it can be opened only by the appointed heir. Only the one who has the authority and the right to break those seals can open it. And this is Jesus Christ, of course. God the Father here at the throne is handing this title deed, this will, to his son, the heir of all things. No one in all the universe could be found worthy enough to open that 
those, those seals and, and to break those seals. And so it's no wonder we see the Apostle John here weeping. He's weeping. He's realized that God's glorious redemption plan for for mankind could never be completed unless someone was found worthy to open the seals and to complete what was on the scroll. The the Redeemer had to be a near kinsman, to be someone who was of kin, uh, in, in the family, if you will. But that person also had to be willing to redeem. If you remember in the book of Ruth, the the kinsman-redeemer imagery there, uh, Ruth and Naomi went to someone else who was was next in line, right, in the family line. That person didn't want to be the kinsman-redeemer. And so they ended up going to Boaz later on. So, of course, you had to be in the family, but you also had to be willing to redeem. You had to be able to redeem. Boaz was a wealthy man, and so fortunately he was able to do that. But Jesus Christ, as our kinsman redeemer, being heir of all things, the creator of the entire universe, of course, is more than able to redeem. And, and the idea of redeem, by the way, I love, I love that imagery. It's, it means you buy back from the slave market of sin. And that's what Christ did. You're on the slave, the slave block, standing there, helpless, naked, destitute. No, no hope at all until your kinsman redeemer comes along and ransoms you. So Jesus Christ meets all of the qualifications. And that's why he is able to take that scroll from his father's hand and break all seven seals. How did he do that? Well, he became flesh. And so in that fact, he is our kinsman redeemer. He loves us as well. He is is willing to ransom us. He is willing to redeem. And then he paid the price. He has, he has what, it, what is able, if you will, to pay the price. And so he paid the price, paid the penalty of sin, which is death, and conquered death once and for all. And so in that light, he is able to ransom and redeem. And now we're able to enter into this, this wonderful worship experience that we see described in the remainder of Revelation chapter 5. In this amazing chapter, there's, uh, there, there, we're, what we're going to discover actually is four compelling reasons why we must worship Jesus Christ. There's four compelling reasons why you and I must worship Christ. Number one, we should worship Jesus Christ because of who he is. Uh, we only need one of these reasons, by the way, but we have four. So let's see who Jesus Christ is according to this chapter, starting in verse 5. Verse 5, it says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns. And with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. There's three unique titles given here in this passage. And all, all three of these unique titles are referring to Jesus Christ. They are describing who he is. Notice the first one. We see here that Christ is the lion 
of the tribe of Judah. Now, if you're not familiar with this reference, it it actually goes all the way back to the book of beginnings in Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis 49, we have Jacob there. That's the context. And Jacob prophetically gave the scepter as he was, he was blessing his, his sons. He prophetically gave the scepter, that, that sign of kingship, not to his oldest son, but to Judah. And of course, Judah being the, the head, if you will, of the tribe of Judah. And of course, from the tribe of Judah came Jesus Christ. And in the process, what Jacob did is he made the tribe of Judah the tribe of the kings of Israel. Now, God, of course, never meant for King Saul to establish a dynasty. Because if you read your Bible, you know King Saul actually came from the tribe of Benjamin, not from the tribe of Judah. And so was the next king in line, King David, who was from the tribe of Judah. And then, of course, if you know your Davidic covenant, you know that Christ is in that, that line showing he is, he is worthy to be king. And so God used Saul, though, to, to discipline Israel because, remember, the people had asked for a king. And God gave them David from the tribe of Judah. Now, why a lion? You ever wondered why, why God would use a lion to describe his son here? Well, the image of a lion, you know this, uh, we often talk of lions as the king of the jungle, right? They're they're the great cat. It speaks of dignity, sovereignty, courage, and victory, amongst other things. And so Jesus Christ is the only living Jew who can prove his kingship from the, the, the genealogies that we have. For example, read Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 shows Jesus' genealogy. It's his family tree, if you will, uh, going all the way back to Abraham. And then in Luke, you you see it goes all the way back to to Adam. And so so in Matthew, it's showing that Jesus is king. Luke showing that Jesus is man. So son of David is another interesting title we have for Jesus Christ. And and again, Matthew chapter 1 shows that Jesus is the son of David. And that was a title that was often used when he was ministering here on earth. Again, showing his kingship, that he is the Messiah, the long-awaited one. So if you want to know more about Christ's family tree, read Matthew chapter 1. So number one, we see that Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Number two, we see here in Revelation 5, in verse 5, that Christ is the root of David. He's the root of David. There's someone's interesting artwork. You can you see a, see a tree and you see the roots, but in the midst of that, you got the star of David with a lion, and and of course at the cro- at the top is the cross. So the root of David. Well, that means that Christ brought David and David's line into existence. And so, as far as his humanity is concerned, Jesus had his roots in David. But that's only as far as his humanity is concerned. But as for his deity is concerned, Jesus is the root of David. Of course, everything that comes out of the ground comes from what's under the ground, in the root. And so that speaks of our Lord's eternality, his divinity. He is indeed the ancient of days, as Daniel called him. 
And this tells us how the Messiah could be both David's Lord and David's son. You ever wondered when you read that particular psalm? And that psalm's quoted in the New Testament. It's kind of confusing. Uh, How can can Jesus Christ be both David's Lord and David's son? Well, that comes together in Jesus Christ because Christ is the root of David. There's a third one mentioned here. It tells us who Jesus Christ is. He is described as the Lamb. The Lamb, capital L, Lamb. Jesus Christ is the Lamb. In fact, it's mentioned at least 28 times just in the book of Revelation alone. The theme of the Lamb, of course, is an important one throughout Scripture. It presents the person and work of Jesus Christ. It shows that He is the Redeemer, the the one who ransoms sinners. The Old Testament question, where is the Lamb, in Genesis 22, was answered by John the Baptist in John 1 when he declared that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The choirs of heaven sing in Revelation 5 here, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. There are several features that indicate that this was no ordinary lamb. All right, so don't just think of, you know, cute little fluffy woolly lambs out in the paddock here. This is not your average lamb, and Revelation 5 makes that very clear. In fact, let me point out four quick things to you. Number one, did you notice the lamb, Jesus Christ, was standing? Did you notice that? He's standing. That shows that he is alive. He is actually on his feet. But interestingly enough, it looks as if he had been slain. The Bible tells us that even today, Jesus still has the wounds in his wrist. He still has scar in his side. And where the nails pierced his feet when he was nailed to the cross, he still has scars. And they will be there for all eternity to remind us of what Christ accomplished. But notice next Again, that number of completion, of perfection, the number seven shows up here again. Christ had seven horns. Now, you're not meant to interpret that literally. Uh, In Scripture, horns symbolize strength and power. Now, if you interpret literally, you come up with some weird-looking creature like that. I don't know who did that artwork. But that's not how Christ looks. So in Scripture, you need to understand the horns symbolize strength and power. Strength and power. Uh, The number seven, of course, the number of perfection. It's symbolizing Christ's absolute power. So not only is he powerful, he has absolute power represented in that number seven. Uh, The third thing I want you to notice in our passage here is that Christ had seven eyes. Seven eyes. Again, uh, we don't interpret that literally. It's meant to be... a, a a figurative, plain, a plain literal. It, it, he has seven eyes. The idea being, it shows he has complete knowledge. Seven being that number of completion. So he has complete knowledge. He sees everything. But it also mentions seven spirits. Christ had seven spirits, which he sends out into the world. And of course, it's describing the Holy Spirit in all of his fullness. The Holy Spirit is also complete and perfect. And so the description of the lamb, if, if uh, it was produced literally by an artist like this one here has done, 
it'd provide a rather grotesque picture, wouldn't it? Kind of ugly, kind of weird. But when understood symbolically, figuratively, it's conveying powerful spiritual truth to us. And so since seven is the number of perfection, what, what do we have here? Well, we have perfect power represented in those seven horns. We have perfect wisdom and knowledge in the seven eyes. Perfect presence. In fact, he's omnipresent, mentioned there in the seven spirits. Now, theologians have different names for these various qualities that are mentioned here. Of course, they they like the word omni, and then you add something else onto omni. Omni means all. And so theologians call this omnipotence. He's all-powerful. He's he's omniscience. He's all-knowing, and he is omnipresent, all-present throughout his universe. And so all three of these attributes here are attributes of God. And of course, because Jesus is deity, we see that Jesus has these attributes as well. So the Lamb is God the Son, Jesus Christ. So number one, we see worship, we worship Jesus Christ because of who He is. Who is He? He's the Lion. He is the Root of David. And He is the Lamb. So we worship because of who He is, but there's a second reason why we must worship Jesus Christ. Number two, we should worship Christ because of where He is. Not just because of who He is, but because of where He is. Look at verse 6. Verse 6. Now, if all you had was the book of Matthew in your Bible, you might find verse 6 a surprise. Verse 6 says that between the throne and the four living creatures... And among the elders I saw a lamb standing. And though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. So where's Jesus here? Where is he? Well, number one, we see Jesus is in heaven. This is heaven. Okay? Where is Jesus not? Okay? This is a good reminder because too many people at Christmas time think of Jesus Christ as just this lowly, humble little baby born in a feeding trough for animals. And they like to keep them there because babies are cute and they're not going to uh, address my sin in any way. But that's not where he is today. Jesus is in heaven. He's not in the manger. And Jesus is not in Jerusalem either. Jesus is not on the cross. And Jesus is not in the tomb. The tomb's empty. My friends, Jesus arose, conquered death, and ascended to God the Father. He is in heaven, and he is exalted. What an encouragement, by the way, uh, for those who are suffering. John writes to suffering believers in that first century, these suffering Christians. And uh, that's, that's an encouragement uh, And for those of us who who may be suffering, this is an encouragement as well, that the ascended Christ is no longer dead. He's not on the cross. He's not in a manger. He's not in the tomb. He is is risen. He is at the Father's right hand. He's there in heaven. And he too suffered, but God turned his suffering into glory. And Philippians 2 has come true, hasn't it? In Philippians 2, we see the the humiliation of Christ, but in verses 9 through 11, we see the exaltation of Christ. And one day, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every tongue, the Bible says. 
even the rebellious ones and the atheists who, who declare there is no God will one day bow and declare Jesus Christ is Lord. And God turned his suffering into glory. And so I ask you, where is Christ in heaven? Where is he? Number one, or number two, we see that Christ is there in the midst. He's right there in the midst. He's at the throne. The Lamb is the center of all that transpires in heaven. He's the center. All creation centers in Him. And we see these four living creatures, which I'm not going to get into talking about those right now, but they're they're, they're an interesting-looking lot. You can read about them in chapter 4. Very strange. Uh, We also have the elders, uh, which I think are a representation of God's people in some form or another. We also have angels around the throne. They're encircling the Savior. And what are they doing? They're praising Him. So Christ is there in the midst, receiving all worthy worship. But number three, Christ is at the throne. Christ is at the throne. Well, some sentimental Christian poetry and hymnody dethrones the Savior, and they, they sometimes emphasize only his earthly life. These poems and songs glamorize the, the baby or the gentle carpenter or the good teacher, the humble teacher, but they fail to exalt the risen Lord. Now, we, we do not worship a baby in a manger. We do not worship a corpse hanging on a cross. We worship the living, reigning Lamb of God who is in the midst of of all that is taking place in heaven. He's at the throne there in heaven. So, we worship Him because of who He is. We worship Jesus Christ because of where He is. But there's a third reason I want to point out to you here, is that we worship Jesus Christ because of what He does Look at verse 8. What does he do? Look at verse 8. Put your eyeballs on Scripture here. It says in verse 8, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We'll stop there for a moment. So we see the Lamb coming. He, he comes, He takes the scroll from God the Father's hand, and the weeping ends because the one who is worthy to open that scroll is there And then we see the praising begins. And God's people and and all these various representatives of God's creation are there and they're joining their voices together in this... Did you notice verse 9 calls it a new song? It's a new song they're singing. It's this new song of praise. And I want you to note that this is praise and prayer being united together. Well, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, it doesn't... Does it say prayer? Well, it, it mentions incense, and, and incense in 
Scripture is a picture of prayer rising before God. It's a sweet-smelling savor before His nostrils. And it's there at the throne of God. Did you notice what kind of song they sing? Not only does it say it's a new song, but let's, let's look at this particular song that they're singing. Uh, to begin with, we see here it's a worship hymn. It's a worship hymn. What are they singing? They're, say, they're singing, You, Jesus Christ, are worthy. Worship, by the way, means to ascribe, to ascribe worth. It shows someone is worth something. In this case, he's worth incredible value. Jesus alone is worthy to open the scroll. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but each Sunday morning I try to have a hymn that lifts our minds and our hearts upward to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the center of worship. Now, sadly, uh, today too many contemporary songs seem to be eye-centered. And, and people think it's appropriate for them to stand there with their eyes closed and pretend nobody else is in the room. And they sing these songs about I, I, I. And it's centered on on them instead of on Christ. And so they emphasize the believer's experience. And in the process, often they ignore Jesus Christ's glory and person and work. Now, don't get me wrong. Certainly there's a place for, for songs that talk about our our relationship and our fellowship with Jesus Christ and the Christian experience and, and the victory we have in our lives because of Christ and, and so forth. But nothing can really compare with adoring Christ in our spiritual worship. Number two, we have a gospel song here. So it was a worship hymn, but it's also a gospel song. Notice it says, You were slain and have ransomed us by your blood. The word uh, translated slain there is, don't, don't just think of a nice death. Think of a violent death. It's, it's a, a violent, some, someone or something that's violently slain. Heaven sings about the cross and the blood. Sadly, some Christians have somehow developed this, this sensitivity that we don't want to sing about blood. We don't want to sing about death. We don't want to sing about someone being slain. In fact, one theologian even called uh, God a child abuser for slaying his son. That's heresy. My friends, we, we need to sing about the cross. We need to sing about blood. We need to sing about slaying. That's what they sing in heaven, and they will for all eternity Shouldn't we do it now? Of course we should. I even read about a a particular denomination that revised its official hymnal, and what they did is they removed all of the songs in their hymnal that talked about the blood of Christ, lest we defile people's sensitivity about blood. That hymnal could never be used in heaven, could it? Because in heaven they glorified the lamb that was slain, the one who shed blood for sin. Number three, this song was a missionary song. This song is a missionary song. Why why do I say that? Well, that that phrase missionary song is not original with me. But why why are they doing this? Well, John is affirming here that 
the lamb died for all people groups. Not just Jews. Not just, you know, whatever, you know, some particular race thinks, you know, it's all about them. No, it specifically mentions all people groups. So the more you meditate on the power and the scope of Christ's work on the cross, the more humbled and worshipful you're going to become. The Bible says that sinners were ransomed here. Notice it says, out of every tribe and language and people and nation. This is a missionary song. It's not exclusive to one little group. Interestingly enough, the word tribe, if you look in verse 9 there, that word tribe refers to a common ancestor. The word language refers to, of course, a common language. People refers to a common race. Nation refers to a common rule or government. So, so I mean, lest you think somehow somebody in, the, in, this, in this world thinks they're left out of the picture, we got four different things mentioned here that includes everybody on planet Earth. Because it is possible to live under a, a common rule or government, like, like, for example, New Zealand. And in New Zealand, we've got many different races, don't we? Many different races. So somebody could, could, if it only mentioned nation, someone in New Zealand could say, well, that doesn't apply to me. Or we could become, we could become proud and say, this, <clears throat> this applies to me and not to you. But we can't do that. This is a missionary song. It applies to everybody. God loves the whole world, and his desire is that this, this message of redemption be taken to a whole world. Matthew 28 makes that clear. You are to make disciples of all nations. Number four, this heavenly hymn is a devotional hymn. It's multifaceted, in case you haven't figured that out. But it's a devotional hymn. It, what is it doing? It's announcing our unique position in Jesus Christ. There's, there, number one, notice it says that Christ makes us a kingdom of priests. Now, you should be thinking Old Testament here. You should be thinking tabernacle and temple when, when in the book of Exodus God made priests. He declared that there was to be a tribe of priests. The Levites, remember? Levites. But when Jesus died on the cross, remember, here he is, he's dying on the cross, 3 p.m., the very moment when all these Jews were supposed to be slaughtering thousands and thousands of lambs in the temple, and Jesus dies on the cross and they're there in the temple, and the veil rips in two. And I'm sure anybody who saw that would have been thinking, oh great, I'm dead. I'm dead. <laughs> and they didn't die. The old covenant ended at that moment. Christ ushered in the new covenant, where he is now the great priest. But not only the priest, not only is our great high priest, he's also the great sacrifice. He does both at the same time. And so when Jesus died, he opened this way to God. That's one of the points of Hebrews, showing Christ is superior in all these ways. He's opening the, uh, the, the gate, if you will, to the very throne room of God. And Hebrews says, we can now come boldly before his throne of grace. And finally, we see here this song was a prophetic hymn. Verse 10, it says, we shall reign on the earth. We shall reign on the earth. This is future, future tense. We shall 
reign on the earth. This is not something that's going on right now. Like some of my friends think that we're now in the kingdom. We're not in the kingdom right now. This is something that's yet to come. We shall reign on the earth when Christ comes during the millennium and establishes His 1,000 year reign. We will reign with Jesus Christ. When he returns to this earth, he's going to establish his righteous kingdom for that thousand year period, and we will reign with him, Revelation chapter 20 says. And creation will be set free from the bondage of sin, and Romans 8 will, will end where it says that creation now at this moment groans, waiting for that day of redemption. And Christ shall reign in justice and in power. There's a fourth reason why we should worship Jesus Christ. We should worship Christ because of what He has. Because of what He has. Put your eyeballs in verse 11. Look at verse 11. It says in verse 11, Then I looked, that's, that's John speaking there, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders uh, the voice of many angels. Well, how many? Well, John, John couldn't count them. There were so many. Look what he says. They're numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, or truly, truly. This is true. We agree. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So in this closing burst of praise here, all the angels and every creature there in the universe, or what are they doing? They're joining together to worship the Redeemer. We have angels. We have the people who have been redeemed there. And so in this hymn, they stated these things that Jesus Christ deserved to receive. Why does He deserve these things? It's because He was the one who was slain. That is why. It's, did you notice in verse 11, Worthy is the Lamb? Why is he worthy? He is worthy because he's the one who was slain. He gave his life as that sacrificial death on the cross. And so when he was on, on, on earth, people, uh, they didn't ascribe these various things that are mentioned here to Jesus Christ. Uh, many of these things he deliberately laid aside in his humiliation, as Philippians 2 says. He humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. So he, he purposely veiled his glory for most of that time, except when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. So most of the time he veiled his glory and his humiliation, and that's why many people rejected him when, when he talked about his deity, that he was God, that he's the Messiah. They rejected him because it didn't match up with their, their picture they had in their brains of the way the Messiah should be. Notice again, seven features or qualities of Christ that demand your praise. Again, the, the number of perfections mentioned here. Seven qualities of Christ that demand our praise. All in verse 12. 
The first one is power. That's, I love that word. It's a, the Greek word, uh, well, depending on which form you're looking at, dunamis or dynamis. Sounds familiar to an English word? We, we get our English word dynamite from this, this Greek word for power. Of course, dynamite's a very powerful substance. And so what we see here is all the force of the universe is, is not flowing through people. All the force of the universe is not in stuff like pantheists believe. It's, it's not in Jedis who have the force. No. All the force of the universe flows from Christ. He has the power. Number two, the second quality of Christ that demands our praise is he's wealthy. <laughs> Wealthy there means riches, and often, most of the time in Scripture, it's used in a material sense. Uh, Talking about our possessions, our lands, our homes, and those sort of things. But Christ is worthy to receive all of the wealth of the universe because he's, why? The one who created. He's also the creator. So that reason, he's worthy of praise. Number three, he he has all wisdom. He has all wisdom. And so worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive this power and wealth and wisdom. And the idea is there is that Christ is all-knowing. He is the omniscient one. So whatever wisdom you and I have, guess where it comes from? It comes from the one who is wisdom, Jesus Christ. And so what are you supposed to do with that wisdom that comes from Christ? You're supposed to return it in a form of praise and worship to him. Notice number four in our list here. Fourth reason why he demands praise and worship is he has all might. Might uh, means capability and strength. He has the capability to do whatever he wants to do. So whatever strength you have, guess where that comes from as well? It comes from Jesus Christ. In fact, you see that imagery in John 15, don't you? You're supposed to abide in the vine, Jesus Christ. You're just a branch. You, Stay attached to the vine. Because without him, you can do nothing. But honor as well is mentioned here. Honor means to value or esteem highly. Because Christ is the one who is worthy. He, he, he is of great value and is to be esteemed highly. We see here that Christ is worthy of supreme value. Number six, glory is mentioned. It's the Greek word doxa. Doxa sounds familiar. We, uh, some, well, we don't maybe, but uh, many churches sing doxologies or make, may say a doxology. Uh, doxa comes, you see it in the doxology. It's, it's Christ is given glory for what He has done as the slain one, the sacrifice, the redeemer. Dox, doxologies are praises. Last number seven is blessing. The Greek word eulogia. Sound familiar again? We get another English word from the Greek word eulogia. Eulogy? eulogy? Sound familiar? Eulogia? Eulogy? When you go to a funeral, you might hear a eulogy, a blessing, right? What's going on when someone, you're at a funeral and you're hearing a eulogy? They're saying, you know, someone's up there talking. Uh, about all these nice things about this person who's 
who's now passed away, right? That's what a eulogy is. And so this is a fitting way to end all these, these seven perfect qualities of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see one who is the lamb. We see one who is the lion, the one who is the root of David. He is the one who is born in weakness as, as just a humble little baby in a feeding trough for animals, but he died in weakness as well. He died on the cross. He, he suffered the, the humiliating, excruciating death of, of, a, of a criminal, as a traitor. He's the recipient of all power, though. He didn't have to do that. He became the poorest of the poor. He gave up the riches of heaven. But yet he owns all of the riches of heaven and earth. It's all his. When he was on earth, men laughed at him. They called him all kinds of nasty names. The Bible here says that he is the wisdom of God. He shared in the sinless weaknesses of humanity. And you can see that he was human. Read the book of Luke. It shows various things. He hungered. He thirsted. He became weary, just to name a few things. Just like you and me. And so today in glory, though, the Bible says he possesses all strength. On earth, he experienced humiliation. He experienced the shame as sinners ridiculed him. They reviled him. They laughed at his kingship. They didn't believe many. But all of that has changed now, isn't it? It's all changed now. He's received all honor and glory. And and the Bible says, as a result, he has blessing. He has a eulogy. He became a curse for us on the cross so that we can never be under the curse of the law. So truly, He is worthy of all praise. And so what do we see here in Revelation chapter 5? That this worship service, if you will, climaxed here with all of the universe praising the Lamb of God and the Father who is also seated on the throne. And did you notice they're, they're even saying, Amen. Amen. It's coming from the, the four living creatures that are that are, that are seen here in our picture. In heaven, we are permitted to say, Amen, truly. I, I agree with what is, what is here. This is true. Amen. And so keep in mind that all of this praise here is centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not on those four creatures, amazing as they are. This, the center of attention is not on the angels, as amazing as they are. It's not on the 24 elders or anything else. It's not on the streets of gold or the amazing mansions that Jesus is preparing for every believer. It's on Jesus Christ. So what, what do we see here? He, we don't see a babe in a manger. We don't see a dead person on a cross. We don't see a good teacher. We see Christ the Savior, who is the theme of their worship. So, in chapter 4... It is possible to worship a creator. It's possible for an unconverted person to praise the creator. Even an unconverted, an unsaved person could recognize that God made everything. But what we see here is someone who who, who must be saved because this person is sincerely praising the Redeemer for the finished work that was accomplished for them. So all of heaven's praise came here because the Lamb took the scroll from the Father's hand, the only one who could take it and open those seals, 
And as a result, God's eternal plan is, is now being fulfilled. All of earthly history will one day come to an end. Creation will no longer groan because the curse of sin will be removed and God will destroy this present earth and the heavens and start over with a new heaven and a new earth. The curse of sin will be gone and everyone who is in heaven will have a perfect glorified body with no sin nature anymore. Creation will be set free from the bondage of sin and death. Read the last couple chapters of Revelation, you'll see that death will be no more. Suffering, sorrowing, crying, all those things we hate will be gone. No longer. So we look forward to the day when the Lamb is, is going to open that scroll. He's going to break those seven seals. And He's going to put in motion these various events we see in the middle part of Revelation. These things will one day come true. All of them. And it's going to lead to a second coming, which will take place on this earth. And then he will establish his kingdom for 1,000 years. And then we enter into the eternal state with a new heaven and a new earth. And you will have glorified bodies with no longer any sin. So as you share in these heavenly worship services, do you find your own heart saying amen? Just as these creatures in heaven are doing. They sung Amen. And if not, my friend, then now is the time for you to get right with God. Now is the time. When you're dead, it's too late. When you're dead, it's too late. There's no second chance. So if not, my friend, will you do so right now? Do not wait any longer, because there is coming a day when you will be dead. There will be no second chance. And there's only one of two places you can go to. It's either heaven And you'll stand here in this wonderful place at the throne room of God and you'll be able to worship as they are. Or it's a place that is in total darkness, in isolation, where you will not have any friends and there will be eternal torment forever and ever. It will never end. It's the only two places that God has has created for eternity. And you're going to go to one of those two places. Which one? Where are you headed, my friend? If, if you're in that second group and you're finding yourself, you're on your way to hell because you've never put your faith in Christ alone, my friend, t- today is the day of salvation. My friend, if you're the believer and you can say amen with the creatures of heaven, truly, I believe that, that Jesus Christ is worthy of worship because I believe He was slain for my sin. Well, I've got a few applications for you, quickly. Number one, be confident in evangelism and missions. And why can we be confident in evangelism and missions? Because knowing that Christ died for people all over the world. So we can go to any race, any nation, any government, any tribe in this world, and we know that God has people from, from there that are His elect. And we'll stand at the throne room of God. That gives confidence in evangelism and missions. It's, it's not confident, no confidence in me. My sales pitch is pathetic. <laughs> All I can say is what Jesus says in the Bible. So it's not my sales pitch. But I'm confident that, that as I 
spread the word as I witness for Jesus Christ that there are people out there whom God has chosen and I can give them the message of the word of God and they'll accept. Number two, believe the time is coming when every creature will praise God and the Lamb forever. It may not look like it right now, but one day it will. And every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Number three, be encouraged by what we see here in the book of Revelation, that God has a plan for the future. God is, is the God of history. It's His story. He's, he's playing it out, so to speak. We, we see that evil will be judged one day. And so we can do what Psalm 37 and Psalm 73 says. We don't need to fret. We don't need to worry. We don't need to wring our hands and, and, and furrow our brows and get all disgusted and bitter about all the various things that are happening in our government or around the world or in our families or whatever. God has a future when evil will be judged. And so these evil dictators and so forth, God's going to judge them. They're in his hands. But we also see that God's people are going to reign on the earth one day. That's also part of his future plan. You will get to reign and rule with Jesus Christ. Be encouraged. Be, be confident in that. That God says he's going, what he says he's going to do, he's going to accomplish that. Number four, be ready or get ready. Get ready. What are you supposed to get ready for? For what we've just seen here. This is, all, this is something that's going to happen in the future. God says it's going to happen. So get ready for what you're going to be doing in heaven. What are you going to be doing in heaven? Well, many things, but one of those is you're going to be worshiping Jesus Christ. As an individual, you'll be worshiping Jesus Christ. But you don't get to do that alone. There's going to be millions and millions. I don't know how many there's going to be there, but there's going to be a lot. Maybe billions and trillions. Who knows? There's going to be a lot. And you'll get to worship with them in this wonderful community. And you need to get ready for that. You need to practice now. That's one of those things that Hebrews chapter 10 says we, we come together. We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And we can practice worshiping together in, in a community of believers. So you're doing that on a regular basis? Not just individually, but corporately with others? So get ready, my friend. This day is coming. It's coming. As sure as, sure as the words are on the page of Scripture here, they're going to come true. And you can be confident what God says He's going to do it.